Well, good morning, church. We have much to much ground uh, to cover, and so I was wondering, what am I going to say here at the uh, at the outset? But I uh, just want to share. Uh, it just came to my mind as you guys were praying for us, just the importance of of partnership uh, with with other churches and not being alone. Uh, in 2017, my wife was diagnosed. Uh, with uh, colon cancer, and she was given a 30% chance uh, for survival. So it's going to be a long road ahead, radiation, chemo, uh, multiple surgeries, ileostomy, all that kind of all that kind of stuff that comes with it. Um, and that particular Sunday, um, when we thought we made a decision, what, where we're going to go, what route we're going to go, the surgeon, all that kind of stuff, uh, we happened to be, uh, I happened to be in Kingsway, uh, there in Richmond preaching. And little did I know, didn't ask for it, uh, but they prayed for me and prayed for my wife after the service. Little did I know that our church back home, for whatever reason, they decided to do the same thing, and it changed everything. Uh, we came home, my wife was just not in faith for the route that we were taking, and we took a long shot uh, of perhaps having someone else who's the chief of surgery in a very esteemed hospital of we thought there's no way we would get in, but uh, we ended up uh, just calling, seeing what the Lord did. We got in like the next, I think, two days from then, uh, and it, it really changed our lives. That prayer from Kingsway, I believe, uh, it helped us hear God's will for us and direction uh, which way to go, because we totally changed uh, directions. And uh, I'm just so grateful that I can report five years later uh, my wife, this December 19th will be the day of her, her first surgery, that she's free and clear uh, of cancer. Some other friends that I've had that had the same cancer, the same degree, the same stage, they're no longer um, on this earth. I'm very grateful uh, for the partnership to be here, just to be cared for, uh, and for you guys praying for me. So I just want to tell you how much that means to me, that you would be willing uh, to pray for for our church. And it's so glorious to know that we're kind of in this together, right? Uh, we're brothers and sisters. We're not alone. Uh, we're not uh, isolated. Uh, but we are family of churches. The only regret I do have uh, hearing Ken speak was there was, you know, some special outing, I guess, with Kingsway that involved eating. And I just don't know why I wasn't invited um, to that because I, I do that well, you know, as you can see. So, you know, maybe I'm going to give a call to Matthew and just see, well, hey, um, how much room do you have there um, uh, in Richmond? Thank you very much. But um, this morning, if you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, we're going to be looking at a corpus of material. So it's not just a few verses we're going to be looking at a few verses in a number of different passages, and I'll explain that um, in just a moment. Chuck Colson, in his book, uh, Loving God, relates the story of this Indiana judge. His name was William Boniger, and he had to pass sentence on a man named Fred Palmer, who was a decorated Vietnam vet who was found guilty of burglary. Uh, well, it just so happened that Part of the crime kind of circumstances behind them were related to drugs and alcohol. But the law at the time said that a man who committed this crime had to be sentenced to 10 to 20 years 
in prison for his offense. To complicate the matters, Palmer, the man who was guilty of burglary, um, had become a Christian. And it seemed that in this short time, his life had changed. And so the question that the judge had to wrestle with is this. 16 days after his rest, the law changed. And it was going to be a much lesser penalty. And he had to decide, what should I do with this man? Should I charge him with the old law or this new law that he's kind of in this gray period um, should I charge him with that, which would be a lot lesser of a sentence? And he chose the latter. Well, the Indiana State Court, when they got hold of that, the Supreme Court of Indiana, they reversed the judge's decision. The judge wasn't happy with that, and he tried to fight the Supreme Court's decision for the next two years. And in that wrestling match, he was actually charged with criminal contempt. And finally, he was forced to resign. Fred Palmer was sent back to prison. However, 20 months later, the governor stepped in and he was uh, out of jail. But here's the point. Judge Boniger, because of his convictions, it cost him his job. It cost him his reputation. And the question I want to ask this morning to you and to me is how do you make decisions of import like that? What's your standard how do you weigh those things and what is the right thing to do in certain circumstances and situations? Well, God answers that question in the Ten Commandments and the Book of the Covenant. The Ten Commandments are ten general rules, and then chapters 21 through 23 are the case laws of those general rules, specific cases and what they scream is this. Hear me. This is what I want to communicate. What they scream is this. Go beyond the right. So this morning we'll have to wipe off the dust of this Old Testament covenant law and remove this film and this of this ancient society and the lacquer of seemingly obscure rules and regulations that are so distant to us. And my call to you is this, to allow Christ to shine through the centuries and jump out of these pages, the law, the Ten Commandments, the Book of the Covenant, detonating grace on your heart and exploding insight and amazement for who God is. We don't look at the law that way. The law is just a bunch of Old Testament rules that no longer have any import on our lives. But because Christ has abundantly fulfilled the law of Christians. Christians go beyond the right. This morning, if you're taking notes, we're going to look at three things. The foundation to sustain, a principle to guide, and a lifestyle to employ. Let's pray as we jump in. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day and this time and ask that you would shine forth truth, that you would help us to grasp and understand not just the law's purpose, but your ultimate purpose in pointing to Christ and changing lives and displaying to the world who you are. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. A foundation to sustain. If you would, open up your Bibles 
to Exodus chapter 20. And I want to notice, I want you to notice that Exodus 20 is the famous passage where we get the Ten Commandments. But I want you to notice something from Exodus 20. I want you to notice the first two verses. And God spoke all these words saying, and here it is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then here it comes. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, etc., etc., etc. Notice that these Ten Commandments, at the very front of the commandments, the very foundation that the commandments are built on, is not rules and law. It's built on grace. Behold, I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of Egypt. I redeemed you from slavery. I delivered you from that darkness. Now, therefore, live differently. The Ten Commandments start with grace. But God didn't record every single instance in the Ten Commandments, nor did he in this book of the covenant. And that's what we're going to look at is the book of the covenant, chapters 21 through 23. And they give illustrative examples of how these principles of do not steal, do not commit adultery, etc., how they're embodied in the Ten Commandments and how they should be fleshed out, what they should look like, how they should work themselves out. And so this morning, God doesn't have Moses record all the possible outcomes, or all the possible laws that could be. Actually, there's about 613 total in the law. But God will provide paradigms and authoritative patterns which would allow Israel and us today principles which would be applied to specific situations that would arise. Does that make sense? So, for instance, if you lived in Old Testament time and you saw commandment um, thou, number eight, thou shalt not steal. What import would that have on paying taxes if that was the rule of the land? Well, the import would be thou shalt not steal what is required of you, do the right thing, and pay your taxes. But you see how those things work together? There's the general principle of thou shalt not steal, but there's the application of real-life application working out in situations where it's not going to tell you to make sure you pay your taxes, although that is something that comes up in the New Testament. But the law is to drive us to Christ. It's not a way to somehow earn salvation. It's not follow these 613 rules and you will have eternal life and go to heaven. That's what many people think the Ten Commandments are. It's the exact opposite. It's to say, see all these rules? This is what it looks like if you want to get to heaven. You have to be perfect because that's God's standard. And so the law, as you read it and understand it, what it should do is not promote um, some effort by yourself to keep the law, to make yourself somehow uh, get God's approval. Instead, the law was meant to show you you could never get God's approval because you could never keep all of these perfectly. He who keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point, the Bible says, is guilty of breaking all of it. It's like a, it's like a glass of, of water where it's clear and transparent, and you drop one drop of dye in, one sin, 
That's what the Bible says. That one sin pollutes the entire glass. If it's blue dye, then it's blue. If it's red dye, then the whole water is red. That's the situation of people's hearts. And the law was supposed to teach them that and show them that to drive them to Christ. But it's also there to restrain evil and to help them to know what pleases God. But I want to talk about a few things today that I don't think when we read the law that we, we get it. I don't think we, we see what I believe God wants us to see. And so I want to talk about three things quickly here under this four, these four points to kind of lay, or three points to, to lay this groundwork. So this will take a little bit of while, so hang with me. We're going someplace. We're going to get there. But I want to talk about these three things first. The law is not the ideal. In other words, the law wasn't the ideal And the Garden of Eden was the ideal, where there was man, there was woman, there was perfection, there was no sin. They walked with God, they communion with God. But we know the story, Adam and Eve broke that communion, they rebelled against God, they refused to receive and accept what God had said, and they basically sinned against God and did something that God forbade them to do. But when they did that, sin entered into the world. And now... This sin is what we call this fall. And now Adam and Eve were separated from God. Their hearts were polluted like that red dye or that blue dye. God couldn't be in the presence of that kind of individual. And now they were separated from from God. And it got so bad that in Genesis 6, 5, it says, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all day the time. That's the condition. You see, the law was not the ideal. It was spoken into that condition. It was given in the midst of a wicked, corrupt world to protect people, to help people, to be able to help people to live in a way that that honored God. But it was never the ideal so many times we think of the law, we think of it as an encyclopedia. We're just to look up certain things and find the law, and okay, this is number 602, uh, and this is what I'm supposed to do. But it was never meant to do that. The law was never meant to be the ideal. Even in Exodus 21.1, it says these are the judgments, or these are the rules you are to set before them. These are the case laws. These are the examples of situations that you might encounter that will help you navigate through life in a way that pleases and honors God. But these laws aren't the ideal, and we'll get to that, and I'll explain that in just a little bit. The law, secondly, was also an accommodation. That meant this. The law was not an endorsement for wicked practices. It was an accommodation in a wicked world. Remember, there's no longer the ideal world. The only folks that lived in the ideal world is Adam and Eve when they walked with God in the garden before there was sin. And that's what heaven is. Heaven is this ideal where we walk with God, where we're with God, where there is no sin. But we live in these in-between times. We live in these times where we live amongst wicked societies and, and, and there's individuals who, 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 who kidnap and slaughter and, uh, and are, are bigoted and all the kind of things that we experience on a, on a daily basis. The law was not 
only not an ideal, but it was also an accommodation. In other words, it was regulating and restraining evil and promoting righteousness. So what does that look like? Well, for instance, divorce is a good example. So the Pharisees came to Jesus, and they said this in the New Testament. Jesus, can we divorce our wives for any reason? And Jesus says, well, this is, well, you know the law. You know the story. No. And they said, well, Moses allowed us to be able to divorce our wives. And what did Jesus say? He says, it was not so in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Back to the ideal garden. It was not so in the beginning. But Moses allowed you to do that because of the hardness of your heart. God wasn't endorsing divorce. He hates divorce in this, in this light because it, it doesn't image who he is as the faithful God of covenant. He is a God who is is faithful, who is true. When he says he loves you, he will love you. When he says he will stick with you, he will stick with you. When he says you are mine, you are his forever and ever. And so the reason that God hates divorce, doesn't hate people who get a divorce. He hates divorce because it images to the world something different than him. But listen, so why does God allow divorce then? Here was the problem. The Pharisees during that time They could divorce their wives. They had so misconstrued the law that they could divorce their wives for burning their food. If you saw someone that was prettier and younger and you were an older man, you could divorce your wife and you could marry this next person. And the Bible says no. And Jesus is saying no. It wasn't that way from the beginning. But do you see how the inclinations of the heart are are evil and wrong? And so what happened? So God instituted divorce. Moses allowed it because it forced the men to publicly go and give a certificate in order to protect that woman because the woman, without, um, without being married, was destitute. And it protected her. And it allowed her to be able to get remarried. But you see, the law wasn't the ideal, but it was an accommodation as well. So even in divorce, you know, it... It was not so from the beginning. You remember the man's to leave his mother and father and cling to his wife. They were to become one flesh. That was God's intention. But because of a wicked world, God allows for divorce. Does that make sense? The law was an accommodation. Another example, slavery. It's often brought up, well, look at slavery. God endorses slavery. Exodus 21, 20, and 21. So here's one of those case laws in those three Um, chapters that we said follow the Ten Commandments. If a man beats his male or female slave with the rod and the slave dies as a direct result, he must be punished. But he is not to be punished if the slave gets up after a day or two since the slave is his property. Hmm. Is God saying, hey, it's okay to beat your slave, but just don't beat him up till they die? Now imagine... Imagine if you lived in Virginia in the year 1860 and the population was 550,000 slaves, a third of the entire population of Virginia. Now imagine if you lived in that time and your father owned slaves. 
and your family maybe owned slaves. And now the, the north was trying to free them, which would potentially ruin you financially. What would you do? What would you do if you were a Christian? Well, you know what many people did? They came to verses like this. But he is not to be punished if the slave gets up after a day or two, since the slave is his property. God endorses slavery. No, no, that's not how you understand God's law. It's an accommodation. That kind of action, that goes all the way back right after the garden with Adam and Eve, with Cain and Abel, when there's murder and when there's oppression. No, it wasn't that way in the beginning. It wasn't that way in the ideal world. It's an accommodation to protect individuals. And God was regulating slavery. He was protecting individuals. And we'll see in a number of verses that are going to follow how good God is to people when people are not good to others. But can you see the temptation for the Christian living in Virginia with slaves? Perhaps who are even being disobedient? They might have believed they were right. And sadly, sadly, in the state of Virginia, you know where it was trumpeted most? That God has endorsed slavery? Guess where? Churches. Guess by who? Pastors. Church, it's really important that we understand God's word and the rationale behind it. If we don't, we end up defending things that are vile and horrible. These laws are not the ideal, but they're pointers to a fuller revelation to come later. That's why Jesus, you guys just went through Matthew, right? We're in Matthew right now too. So you remember when Jesus said, you have heard it said, don't commit adultery, don't steal, but I say to you. You know what he was doing right there? They were saying, oh, I just don't, just don't murder. And Okay, that's something. I haven't murdered anybody, um, so I can, I, can, I can keep that. Jesus saying, you don't understand the law. I tell you that even if you're angry in your heart, you have committed murder. He just took that bar and said, uh-uh, this is where the bar was supposed to be the law if you understood it right. And if you understood it right, you would recognize that you can't keep it. And you have been a murderer all your life, every time you've been angry. In other words, he's, the law was supposed to give us a picture of our heart. This is what our heart looks like. We're a people that desperately need God's intervention. The law was never meant somehow that we just keep these rules and regulations and make us good, good enough for God. The problem is we can never be good enough for God because God's standard is perfection. Does that make sense? The law, it was never an ideal. It was an accommodation. But here's the part I really want to get to. Here's the part that's hardly ever talked about. The law reveals God's character. Look at Exodus 22, 26, and 27. I think it'll be behind me. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering. And it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, listen, for I am compassionate. You see, God's law is an extension of who he is. It's not a bunch of rules and regulations, do's and don'ts. If you do these, God loves you. If you don't, it's, it's, it's also a revelation of who God is. Act this way. Why? Because I 
am compassionate. To break a law, though, is not merely to transgress a rule. It's to do the exact opposite of who God is. It's to do the exact opposite of who God is. You see, to sin is to do what God would never do. And when we sin, when we break these laws, what we're revealing to the world is, this is what God's like. I'm a follower of God. People know it. People know I'm a Christian. And when I live a certain way, I am projecting who God is to my friends and family. But the law reveals God's character. Listen to Deuteronomy 15, 9 through 15. In the year of Jubilee, when God commanded that anyone who was a slave, that they had to be released. He says, take care lest there be any unworthy thought in your heart. And you say in the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. In other words, on that seventh year, they were required to release someone uh, that was in slavery. Maybe they were in debt, and they were paying off their debt. No matter if they paid it off or not, when that seventh year came, it was, if it was year five to seven, and seventh year came, you had to release them. But listen to what he says. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land, therefore I command you, listen, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and the poor in your land. If your brother, a Hebrew man or Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you for six years. In the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you, and you shall let him go free from you. You shall not. You shall let him go. You will not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him, listen, liberally out of your flock out of your threshing floor, out of your wine press. And the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day. Did you hear what he just said? Not only are you to free him, but you're to free him liberally. You're to supply him with wine, with food, with goods. They've been working for you for seven years. They have nothing. It's like they've been in prison, and they're coming out. What are they going to do? They're going to be destitute. Well, not you, because you're a follower of me, and this is how I respond. This is how I act. This is who I am. I say, open your mouth, and I will fill it. This is how you're to treat a slave, unlike any other in all the world. Note that the heart of the law reveals the character of God who God is, and the law rightly understood, it should not only drive us to Christ because we need a Savior, we need someone to rescue us, we need someone to forgive our sins because we can't fulfill it, but it should also cause us to have a heart after God and live in accordance with His grace and give cause to be amazed at our Savior who not only fulfilled the letter of the law, but He now credits us with righteousness. Did you hear what He said? Did you hear why he said to treat the slave this way? Because you were a slave, and I redeemed you. Therefore, I command you to do the same. When you do that, you're speaking to the world. You're shouting to the world, this is who God is. Now act that way. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. 
Have no other gods before me. Make no graven images. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie. Why? I don't steal. I don't lie. I'm not unfaithful. I want you to image to the world who I am. And the law does that. It brings forth God's character. They were to point to God's glory. Look what Deuteronomy 4, 7 and 8 says. I don't have that up behind me. But turn your Bibles if you have that verse, really quick. This is what was supposed to be the response of the nations around when they saw people understanding the law, not using the law to say that slavery is right and good and this is why we're doing it. But instead, the law should reflect who God is. Look what verse 7 says. Deuteronomy chapter 4. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? That's the intention of the law, to show the character of God. And oftentimes, that's totally neglected. Okay, so that's kind of the groundwork, a foundation to sustain. Now let's look at this principle to guide. The third point's going to go by really quick. But here's the principle to God. I'll kind of, spoiler alert, be on the right. That's going to be the principle. So to make it right, when you see in verses 3 and 34, it talks about there in the book of law, chapter 21, if an animal falls into a pit and dies, you dig the pit, you're required to make restitution. It's a conscious consideration of others. You're to do the right thing. As a follower of God, God calls you and me to do the right thing. So Israelites were required to have a paraphat, a, a fence on top of the roof, so that when they were having dinners and all kinds of things on, on top of the roof, where oftentimes was the most spacious place, to build a fence. Why? So that people that are visiting, people that are your guests, people that are strangers, that if they're there, it would protect them. Yes, it might cost money. Yes, it might be labor intensive. But you are a people who are supposed to take into consideration others. Make it right, but not just make it right. Look at Exodus 22.1. You're to go beyond. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. What kind of law is that? Can you imagine? Okay, I steal a sheep, now I got to give four back. What's glorious is the story about Zacchaeus. You guys know the story of Zacchaeus, right? He's a tax collector. He's a chief tax collector. He's hated by the Jewish people because he's employed by the Romans who are oppressing them and in charge of their land. And he's basically, the Romans say, okay, Bruce Chick, he owes $100 in taxes. And this Zacchaeus comes up and says, hey, Romans say you owe $200 in taxes, and I got to pay it to him. And he's becoming filthy rich. People hated tax collectors. Tax collectors weren't even able to testify uh, in a court of law. But you remember what happens. Jesus comes for Zacchaeus. He says, come down. I'm going to your house today. He goes to his house. And Zacchaeus has this epiphany. As he meets Jesus, as he hears Jesus teach, he has this epiphany. And he stands up. And he says this. Listen, I have done wrong. And because I've done wrong, I'm going to give half of all that I own to the poor. And if I've robbed anyone, here it is, if I've robbed anyone, I'm going to repay him 
four times. He understands the law, but do you see what he just did? He didn't just do what's right. He didn't just satisfy the requirement. He went beyond what the law said. And what did Jesus say as soon as he heard that? Today I tell you the truth. This man, salvation has come to this house. This man is also a son of Abraham. And people must have been shocked. How in the world can a, a sinner like that be a part of the family of God? He's unrighteous. He's, he's filthy. He's a scoundrel. He understood the law. He understood God. This is what should mark the Christian, not just doing the right thing, hear me, but going beyond. Exodus 22.5. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over and lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and his own vineyard. Do you hear what he just said? So if somehow you've stolen 12 olive trees or somehow you've corrupted 12 olive trees, not only are you to restore 12 trees, but you're to give the best, the most productive of your trees of your own field. He doesn't just return them, but he gives back what? His best. Remember it was the same with Cain and Abel? Way back when that world got corrupted, Adam and Eve's uh, sons, Cain and Abel. Remember, Cain just brings some offering, but what does Abel do? He brings the fat portions. He brings the very best. Or how about how about Ruth? How about Boaz? Why are they these righteous characters? Well, because they go beyond. They do what's not just required. They're willing to lavishly give. And here's the wrong question that's asked many times. How much, how much can we do in a relationship of courtship? Where's the lines that are drawn? What's the law? You know what Scripture screams? You're asking the wrong question. You go beyond it. Not even a hint. That's God's command. How about for elders? Is it okay just to do the right thing? Is it okay just to be okay? Nope. Beyond reproach. It's the same throughout Scripture. It's this cry of going beyond that screams in the Old Testament, but also the New Testament. I remember too long ago when we purchased a property, a land that we have since sold, we found out that the lady who was there who owned it was a former uh, uh, wife of a missionary. They had uh, been in South Korea and they were medical missionaries that came back home. They ended up buying the land and we found out that this lady wanted a certain amount of money and it was to fund her grandchildren's college education. She was a widow um, and we were going through this, the law, we were going through this stuff, and as we were talking about, um, you know, our offer, which was $40,000 less uh, than what she was asking, um, someone kind of raised their hand and says, why don't we just go beyond the right? You know what we did? We gave her more than she was asking. Why? Because we felt convicted that this is who God is. She didn't understand it. She thought it was weird, that it was strange. But the law's strange. God's ways are strange. Who, who does this kind of stuff? Who pays back fourfold? 
Christians are called to honor God, to make him look good. Exodus 22.2. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun is risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. So a burglar comes in at night, struggle ensues, death results, no guilt. Another case, a burglar comes in during the day, struggle ensues, death results, the owner of the house is guilty. How come? Well, this is why. Because life's precious. And when it's daylight, you get out. Even the person that's doing harm to you, escape from them. Get out the window. Get out the door. Um, life is precious. That's the principle that is being um, held out there. So much different. Unlike Cain, who was willing just to wipe out his brother's life because he was jealous. You see, the Christians, a Christian's law, the law of Christ, it's higher than the land's law. We are called to a higher calling. Why? Because we are God's image bearers. We are people who bear the name Christian, who are indwelt by the Spirit. What would happen if every care group meeting, every family night, every opportunity to participate in a mission fund or whatever it might be, if everyone went beyond the right? You're already doing it here. I, I saw breakfast being prepared, and I just thought, as Ken told me, I thought, that's crazy. You're telling me that one person and her daughter, they're preparing breakfast for everyone that comes to Sunday school, you know, 50 different people? What is up with that? That's a good understanding of who God is. It's a great understanding of who God is. It's my privilege, it's my pleasure to do this. Why? I know it's, I don't have to do it. But I'm going beyond the right. Why? Because I have come into contact with a God who does that every time. And he so blessed me, he so changed my life that I want to serve others. Make it right, go beyond. And then there's this concern for this little man, the one who is weak, the one who's simple, the one who's alien or, or an orphan. You know, God has a heart for widows, for the alien, the orphan. Why? Because they're weak because they're helpless. It's like the person that he allowed the divorce to happen. I want to protect them. I want to guard them, because society is just going to steamroll them. They're just going to use them. They're going to shame them, and I won't have that. One of my professors talked about going on a mission trip and going to the, uh, you know, wherever that place is where people sell their wares, typically, if you've been on mission trips before. And and I remember going in many times and seeing a salad kind of, uh, I was in Haiti, I think, at this time, and see the salad bowl. And I just thought to myself, I can go to Walmart and get that for, you know, whatever the number was. And why would I want to pay this much? But when I was in that class, he said this. He says, when I go on a mission trip, listen to what he said. I want the other guy to get a good deal. Huh? I want to be concerned about the other guy. I want to advantage others at the expense of myself. Does that sound familiar? Do you know anyone that does that every single time? His name starts with a capital J and ends with an S. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> it was revolutionary to me. I had never heard that before. And he said, this is my definition of righteousness. Community first, me second. This is wickedness, me first. Community second. But imagine when you're selling your house 
and you're not just interested, or buying a house. We got it. And sometimes Christians are, are guilty of this. I'm just talking to our realtor about this offer uh, that we're trying to get some parcels of land. And, and that we we're talking about, you know, as a Christian, you know, maybe that would, would be helpful for them to know it's just a church or nonprofit. And I just stopped her and I said, listen, we're not interested in getting a good deal at the expense of the seller. We want, we want them to get a good deal. And we think God's big enough to do both. And I just kind of left it at that person's not a, a Christian. But that's how Christians live. How will it make God look? This is the cry of Scripture. Listen to what he says in Exodus 22, 25. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it's his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. If you lend money, don't exploit those who are in difficult circumstances. Yes, it is your legal right. Yes, you can do that, but don't charge them interest. If a poor neighbor offers his cloak as collateral, make sure you give it to him at night so he doesn't freeze. Don't let greed trump compassion. Why? I'm a compassionate God. That's who I am. And this law that I'm giving you, it's a reflection of who I am. It's a reflection of my character. When you keep it, when you understand it, when you live it, you're a correct reflection of who I am. When you don't, you're not reflecting me well. Exodus 21, 22, 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do, mistreat them. And they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. What's he saying here? He said, wow, what a mean God. No, he's passionate about compassion. He's passionate about treating others the way that he treats us. God's passionate about treating the powerless well, going beyond the right, especially to the little man, especially to the poor man, especially to the widow, the orphan. Why treat the little man well? Why? Why? We've already talked about it. It started the Ten Commandments. Why? I am the Lord your God who what? Brought you out of each. You're the little man. That's why you treat other people well. Because you've been treated well. You've been helpless. You were enslaved. You were in darkness. You had no hope of redemption. You had no chance to get to heaven. You didn't keep the 613 laws every day, 24-7, for every year of your life. You're polluted. You're corrupt. You don't deserve mercy. But I'm compassionate. And I am a God of mercy. And I sent my son to come and die in your place. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for the powerless, for the little man. That's how God treated us, and he wants us to do the same thing. Listen to Exodus 23, 12. You talk about strange. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Is that crazy? Six days work on the seventh day? 
hey, give your slaves a day off. Not only that, even the animals are given a vacation day. What kind of God is that? It's a God that goes beyond the right. It's a God that's different from every other religion in all the world. There's no other God like our God. Not only did he say to do what's right, to go beyond, to be lavish and, and generous, but also grace to excel. Look at Exodus 23, 4 and 5. Hold on with me. We're almost done. We're, we're, we're moving along. Ten more minutes. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of the one who hates you, if you see the donkey of one who hates you, if you meet your enemy's ox, Lying down is under a burden. You shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. What kind of law is that? You're telling me my enemy's ox? The guy who hates me? The person that is doing all this wrong to me? You're telling me that I have to return the wrongs that he's given with the right? Does that story sound a little bit familiar? Kind of like Jesus and the Good Samaritan, where this one that's supposed to be this half-breed, this person that the Jews hate because they're um, uh, mixed religions and they're uh, the mixed ethnicity, and, and Jesus says this Good Samaritan, what does he do? Do you remember what he does? The priest goes by, he just leaves him. The Levite goes by, they just leave him. All the religious people go and leave him, but the Samaritan, he goes and binds up his wounds. Then he sends him back to a hotel, basically. And he says to the man in charge, here, here's money for his night's stay. And whatever, however long he stays to get well, I'll come back and pay. He's not only doing the right thing, but what's he doing? He's going beyond the right. Yes, that's the scream of Scripture. That's what Scripture says. That's what the law is trying to communicate. And so when I hear someone like Richard Dawkins blaspheme God, or another woman, Richard Dawkins is an atheist, or a woman stand up and criticize God as evil, having saying uh, Abraham to kill his son. No, listen, God stopped that. God killed his own son to rescue you and me. You have it all wrong. You have the Old Testament wrong. You have God wrong. God is gracious and kind, compassionate, even to his enemies, even to those who don't deserve it who don't deserve his love, his mercy, his compassion. That's who Jesus is. Listen to what Jesus says. Here's one who understands God's law. Luke 6, 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. From the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic. Verse 32, if you love those who love you, what benefit will that be to you? For even sinners love those who love them. But love your enemies, verse 35, and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And here it is, and you will be sons of the Most High. You will be acting like God. You will be reflecting God to the world because this is who your God is, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. You ever read any good commentaries? That's Jesus' commentary on the Old Testament law. He understands it. He knows it. Jesus goes beyond the right. And listen, 
You know where I'm going now, right? Jesus did everything perfectly correct. Kept all the 613 laws, not just he always did the right thing, but he never knew the right thing to do and didn't do it, for he knows a good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. That's a sin as well. But also, even thoughts in our head can be sin. So sin is bad things we do. It's good things we should have done. And even we can sin in our mind, like become angry, and it's murder in the heart. Jesus obeyed all the 613 laws, but all the import, all the applications of all those things, and he did that perfectly. But then what did he do? He exceeds the wildest imagination, and he freely gives people the opportunity to receive credit for all that he has done by giving them his righteousness. Let me explain this. If you're here just to watch the baptism today and you haven't been to church very often, listen, this is what this baptism is saying. This is what happened in the gospel, the good news. The good news is Jesus came and he lived a perfect life, a life that you could not live. He kept every single law. He was the only one who qualified to be a substitute. And he voluntarily was your substitute on the cross. And he took the punishment that you deserved. He took the very wrath of God. He says to you today, if you'll come, give me your sins. Every single one of your faults, all of your guilt, all of those things you've done throughout your entire life, I will take all of them. If that's not extraordinary, I don't know what is. Who would take your reputation of a pornography lover, of an adulterer, thief, and liar. He says, I'll take it. Not just some sins. I can't take some. I got to take every single one. And I'm going to die in your place. I'm going to take the punishment of God so that you can be forgiven. What kind of God is that? But you know what? He does a lot more than that. (laughs) That'd be great, wouldn't it? It wouldn't get you into heaven. You'd be forgiven, but you wouldn't be going to heaven. You know how you get to heaven? That's what we saw in baptism. Go down the water, come up from the water, symbolizing what? They're washed clean. They're forgiven. They're robed in the righteousness of Christ. Jesus says to the cross, come, give me all your sins. Not only am I going to take your sins, not only am I going to take the wrath of God, not only am I going to stand in your place and take your punishment so that you can be forgiven, but I will also give you my righteousness, my perfection. I will give you, if you will, a GPA. Your GPA is negative 100,000 billion zillion uh, below zero, and his is A plus 4.0. And he says, I'll take your record as my own, take the punishment for you, and I'll give you my record, my righteousness. He goes beyond The cross of Jesus Christ is the epitome of God going beyond the right. What kind of God not only is willing to forgive, but to give the people who have sinned against him for decades his own son, his own righteousness. Listen, it's not mom and dad. What do I need to do just to get by? No, no. It's what do I need to do to exceed what they ask? Not only to bless them, but to display who God is to the world. See the difference? It's a different way of living. It's a different way of understanding. Exodus 23, 10 through 11. If you're not convinced yet, 
For six years you shall sow your land and gather its yield, but in the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow. In other words, farmers, stop your business. You've built up this business for six years, seventh, take off. Don't do anything the entire year. Why? That the poor of your people may eat and that they may leave the beast of the field that they may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. You hear what he's saying? Think if you're a business owner. Think if you're an entrepreneur. You've worked really hard at your business. You've built it up. It's starting to roll. Things are starting to fall into place. Then it's year seven. Lay it down so that the poor can take it over, so that they can manage it, so that the beast will even have something to eat. Imagine the testimony of the poor, of God's goodness, and those righteous landowners that that would portray. Imagine what they would think about God. Who does this? This is crazy. God? Because he's a God who's filled with crazy mercy and crazy love and crazy compassion. When I say that, I don't say that in a way like crazy, like a cool kind of crazy. I mean a deep compassion and grace like none other. That's what Kim was trying to say this morning to those of you who perhaps here haven't received that. You can. It doesn't matter how you've sinned. He's willing to take your place. He's willing to receive the punishment you deserve and, and give you his righteousness that you too may have a relationship with God forever and forever. Last and quickly, a lifestyle to employ. How should we live then? We're just going to ask three questions. The first is just to ask, what's the right thing to do? What honors God most? Second, ask yourself this question. What would most glorify God? If the worship team is going to close with a song, are they? They can come up right now. Booker T. Washington, what would most glorify God, describes a meeting with an ex-slave from Virginia in his book, Up From Slavery. And this man had a contract with his master two or three years previous to the Emancipation Proclamation, to the effect that the slave was permitted to buy himself back, to pay for his own body. And while he was paying for himself, he was permitted to labor wherever he might go to be able to make the most money in doing so. So he moved to Ohio, and he went there. But when freedom came, he was still in debt, some $300 notwithstanding the Emancipation Proclamation that had just happened, it freed him of any obligation to his master. Yet this black man walked the greater portion of the distance to where his old master lived in Virginia. Listen. And he placed every last dollar with interest into his hands. Booker says, in talking to me about this man, the man told me that he knew that he did not have to pay his debt but that he had given his word to his master, and his word he had never broken. He felt he could not enjoy his freedom till he had fulfilled his promise. Wow. Wow. I don't know if that man was a Christian or not, but boy, did his actions reflect the character of God. And you know what? The follower of God's, follower of God, they're to reflect God's character too. How? Not just by doing what's right, but by the grace of God in light of what Christ has done at the cross, in light of the Spirit who lives within you and me, to go beyond 
the right. Third question simply is, how can I advantage other people? When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Now listen, this cutting of the field, in other words, leaving the edges and leaving it so the poor can have uh, food. This is a law that was intended for national Israel during a period that they occupied the promised land under a theocracy. And so it, it doesn't stick today that if you're a farmer, you have to do this, obviously, because Jesus fulfilled all the law. But the ramifications of what that law stands for, the principle behind it, the character of God would promote someone who's thinking of advantaging other people. Even at times, sometimes, when it might disadvantage ourselves. Remember what Jesus said is the greatest commandment? Remember? Someone just say it. Yeah, Deuteronomy 6, 5. Love the Lord your God with our heart, all your soul, all your strength. Right? You know that's found? Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, 5. And then he said, the second law is what? Love your neighbor's self. You know where that's found? Leviticus 19. Yep, look it up. Amazing. The Old Testament law is a reflection of God just as much as the New Testament. Does that make sense? When the Bible says God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, guess what? means it. He means it. You know what that means for you? That means when a God promises you that if you'll confess your sins and believe that Jesus died for your sins and God raised him for the dead, you'll be saved. That's the God that we serve. Glory be to God. A foundation to sustain, a principle to guide, and a lifestyle to employ. What a privilege it is to be representatives of this kind of God. We have so much to be grateful for. Now God calls us by his grace and because we want to. We want to image who he is to Fredericksburg, to our neighborhoods, at our jobs, in our own families. We want to show people who God is and what he's like. And listen, we can even do that with the law. We can do that with the entire Bible because the entire Bible is a revelation of who God is.